Welcome to the first Sydney Ideas event of 2018. Very glad that you could all be here and that you've been following us on Facebook and all of our social media channels. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are standing on the land of the Gandhara country of the Eora Nation as custodians of their land. So today's talk is translating culture and talking with translators. So I'd like to welcome our MC, Professor Corrales from the Department of Modern Greek at the University of Sydney. Thank you so much for oh, your lovely introduction. I'd like to welcome all of you here. Today we've started around nine o'clock, having a very long and, and uh, in detail discussions about the importance of translation throughout Australia, throughout the world, globally and glo locally and globally, as we're saying, uh, because this is a very important discussion that we have today, how we connect the global and the local in a way that will be relevant without being too abstract, in a way that will be too... Uh, uh, close to us without being too um, uh, a platonic uh, as a generalization. So before starting, I'd like to um, remind you that we'll, the, our meeting today will last uh, until 7.30. We'll have one hour of discussion with our panelists, and then uh, at 7 o'clock we will have uh, a Q&A with you. So it will be prepared your uh, questions, write them down if you like, if you, during the uh, discussions that we have here, and uh, everything will be uh, a sort of a kind of easier for all of us. And um, may I also remind, remind you that um, Foxtel is actually filming our meeting for today. So I'll try to be in your best possible behavior because you'll be on the telly. And, uh, and that'll be very good for all, all of us as well. You know, succinct and to the point questions, not long statements. But before starting my introduction, I'd like to introduce you our panelists for, to, uh, for today who are uh, uh, very well-known, internationally well-known scholars in their field. First of all, I'll start with Professor Ishu Liu from uh, the head of the School of Languages and Cultures at the University of Sydney, and uh, whose uh, thanks to whose uh, assistance and inspiration we are here today, and uh, uh, we put together this panel. And for some of you who know, it will be for four days supported by the research programs of the University of Sydney. Then our second panelist is Professor um, uh, Adrian Vickers from the D Department of Indonesian and South Eastern Studies, one of the most famous and most, uh, if I may say, creative translators of ideas and uh, of and artistic ideas in particular between Indonesia and uh, South Pacific and Australia. Our third uh, panelist is Dr. Oh, Associate Professor uh, Chris, sorry about this, Associate Professor Chris Andrews from the University of Western Sydney, a translator himself uh, and a very uh, academic, of course, and a very important poet, significant poet in, in, uh, in Australia. I strongly recommend you read his, uh, to find his work. And then finally, uh, Dr. Joshua Sternberg from the University of Sydney, uh, who is probably one of the most important transcultural, in this case, translators that we have at Sydney University, as you will see today. My name is Professor uh, 
forget the profession, Vraska Radlis. So, <laughs> so Vraska can simply call me Vras. I'm teaching Greek here and I have been translate, a translating, a, a practicing translator for the last, uh, uh, before I was born, as a matter of fact. You know, just for many, many years, published a lot of uh, articles and books of translation, having translated Patrick White into Greek and many Greek important writers into English. So why do we do this? Because the art of translation has not been studied as much as it should have been studied in Australia as one of the central strategies for nation building and social cohesion. We live in a multicultural society. We all need translators to mediate between, in order to understand our differences, in order to understand our similarities, and in order to essentially, as you understand in this case, conceptualize, interpret our dissimilarities and differences. Furthermore, it has not been studied in regard to the actual poetics. What do these translators do? And what are the forms of articulation or the philosophical or theoretical conditions as a distinct forms of distinct forms of knowledge? What we're doing today is twofold. First, an attempt to delineate the progress of the art of translation and of translators in Australia and then to, then to examine the subjectivity of the translator, and finally, the insignificance of both of them for the society we're living in, especially Australia. In Australia, as you understand, the art of translation is not simply a circumstantial enterprise based around the financial needs of a cultural system. It's something beyond that. It's a cultural necessity. We're a multicultural, and therefore a multilingual society. You understand from my accent that there are so many different accents in this room that we need sometimes cultural mediators in order to understand what these accents are talking about. This is what we call an accented knowledge. So translation is not simply, a, a, if I may say, an institution or a practice of the, of the cultural industry. It establishes cultural affinities, intellectual bonds, and finally, as you understand, connects and unifies a society, establishes its cohesion, cultural, political, and social, by creating common symbolic patterns of cultural recognition and self-recognition, consequently, therefore, of self-determination. Australia is at the crossroads, one of the most important, if I may say, world at the moment changes that we see through globalization, the rise of China, the rise of new countries, and the old world essentially, as you see, of the West, the Western-centric, the Occidental world, essentially, thanks to Donald Trump, goes to the second level, as you understand, of significance and importance. Today, we have four panelists, and uh, without further ado, I would like to ask them issue. What is the importance of translation in Australia? Uh, firstly, it is a reality, and secondly, it is a necessity for us not only to do translation, but also to think about why it is so important and why it is necessary. So a reality, when we walk on the streets, 
We hear different languages. We don't just hear people speaking English. Go to down any cafe, any parks, anywhere in Sydney, you hear many languages. So that is a reality. A reality which actually calls for reflection. I mean, we live happily, we talk about multiculturalism in Australia, we talk about you know, harmony of the society, but we do not really reflect the reality of multilingualism as well. And surely English is the language of communication. Surely English is the official language. But do other languages have an important space in our understanding of Australia's past and present? Did they ever play a role? Are we aware of these roles? Are we as scholars shouldn't be interested in knowing about this? So to me, I think, talking and thinking about translation in Australia, it is a reality and it is a necessary necessity for us. Adrian, has there been any contribution of other languages in Australia? We are, a, a, if I may say, thanks to Tony Abbott and our famous other politicians here, you know, we are proud to be a monolingual society. You know, just, you know, are we? Myth mythically, yes, Mythic but, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the reality is not. I mean, that, that I do, that there is a story that the um, that there was a Chinese cook on the first fleet. I don't know whether this is quite true, but but certainly in terms of the layering of languages that formed white settlement and then the pr prior existence of 400 plus Aboriginal languages that it's actually very difficult to separate who we are as Australians from a multilingual existence, both in terms of our geographical placement and in terms of historical relations. So, I mean, I've looked uh, at one example of, of Northern Australia uh, from the 1870s to the 1970s and looking just at the, in that case, at the pearling industry, pearl shell industry, for example, you would find large numbers, thousands of Indonesians, Japanese, Chinese, people from the Philippines, people from Pacific Islands, interacting with each other and with Aboriginal peoples using a rich la layer of languages. So not just being forced to communicate in Indonesian, but uh, in English, but in fact using Malay Indonesian to speak as a common language and then learning Aboriginal languages. So, so that is already part of our history. And, and I think to deny the multilingual na nature of Australia is to deny who we are. Chris, what do you think? Has it been recognised appropriately by the government, by the institutions? Have the language departments like us, the best on the planet, as you know, here at Sydney University, have been actually assisted? You are from Western Sydney, but yes. we, try to, we try to ignore that. <laughs> Um, has it been recognised properly by the government? I mean, I, th I think there was a time when it was possible to get Australia Council support for translations done in Australia, but not of Australian books. 
I don't believe that's possible currently. Uh, support is still possible for books written by Australians, so for, for export. I think um, one thing that would be great would be is if we could support the, the, um, the local translation industry. Um, so that's, um, that's, that's something to go on the wish list. As a translator, um, have you been assisted enough yourself, you know, just? I, um, <laughs> yeah, look, I don't, I don't, I have no complaints personally at all, but I think, I think literary translation is a financially precarious activity, and I think it's very difficult for Australian publishers to, um, to take the risk without any kind of help. Now, as Josh was saying this morning, sometimes that help can be coming from the country in which the, the original book was published. Um, and Josh, what do you think about this financial investment for translation? Do you think that deserves it? Do we deserve to translate texts, or simply we rely on Google Translator these days? You know, just you know, all these um, you know highly inaccurate, you know, just uh, gadgets of the cyberspace. <clears throat> we rely on the gadgets for us. The Google Translate is the future. Yeah. All right. <laughs> No, I mean, um, well, I, so I'm in Chinese studies. I translate mostly from Chinese. Um, I think, I think uh, what's very important in this space, not only in Australia, but in the English-speaking world in general, perhaps even broader than that, is to use translation as a way to vary the stories that are told about the Chinese world, the Chinese-speaking world. Um, and I'm thinking about... Uh, Australia. I'm thinking about you know the Chinese newspapers that date to the late 19th century in in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, I'm thinking about the opera that was performed in the Victoria Goldfields. You know, I'm thinking about that history as well. And it's, it is a transnational history. We have we have Cantonese opera in Havana. We have Cantonese opera in Peru. We have it in you know Sumatra and Java and Philippines. I'm going to the Philippines to look at the Chinese opera that's still being performed there in a, a week. Um, and and I want, I want to use translation, or I try to use translation, of various stories, of stories that come from traditional China, of stories that come from transnational Chinese world, of stories of uh, ethnic, of gender, of sexual diversity in the Chinese-speaking world that, are, that exist um, and that deserve to be told and that can give a, a real variety of Chinese lives. Um, under various, uh, you know, in various parts of mainland China and of the broader uh, Chinese worlds to counteract um, the real danger that China is seen as a monolith, um, a monolithic culture, a monolithic power that only, you know, um, uh, provokes anxiety um, among uh, English-speaking or Western readers. So I think it's important. I think it's important to do translation because when you just have so-called, you know, China watchers and I'm, you know, or Chinese academic, uh, you know, academics of China talking about it, you're always doing that story. Is like, how do I represent China for the Australian public? How do I represent China in a newspaper article, you know, directed at an English-speaking readership? And when you do translation, you you have an opportunity to see a little bit more, to catch a glimpse of the stories that that of those many cultures that they are telling one another. Um, and that's, that's always going to be a more nuanced and richer view. 
Let's expand a bit the discussion issue. Do you think that translation is only literary translation or verbal translation or something wider and which can actually give us a window, a big door into entering another world and another society? You, you have yourself is a living embodiment, born in China, studying German and teaching German in English, so I think that there is nothing more <laughs> transcultural than existentially your, your presence here. You know, just, you know, but do you think that, uh, what, what is included in this act of translating, you know, just? Well, that is a very big and very complex question, and even if we just think it about you know, at a metaphysical level, just in terms of uh, knowledge, it's going to be big. So I think translation is part of the transfer of knowledge. And human humanity progresses because humanity is generally open for new knowledge, and hum humanity is very mobile, they travel. I, I once wrote a very short piece about why Homo sapiens at the end actually defeated Neanderthals. So I came to the conclusion that firstly, uh, Homo sapiens are better communicators. And secondly, they travel. Because when you imagine in the Ice Age, when both humans and Neanderthals are trying to kill beasts for survival, humans or homo sapiens were able to communicate in groups, maybe hunting an animal in groups to the days where Neanderthals mainly relied, according to archaeologists, on their strengths, individual strengths, so they are much more likely to be killed by animals. So I think it is in our nature, in our nature being humans that we communicate, we learn new things, and we travel, move from Africa to every, everywhere else um, on the globe. Um, so to, to think that you could have a monolithic culture which doesn't move, it's not open, I think it is a very, very new phenomenon. Maybe, maybe since since the 19th century, when people start to define what is nation, what is culture, what is a state. So when state, territory, and language and culture are linked, then we start to think about cultures are maybe monolithic and they do not talk to each other. Cultures do, but how cultures talk to each other, are they rely on those people who are open and who are willing to cross the borders and to be intermediaries. And these are the translators. But I don't think translators should be seen as just a profession, you know, reserved for a few who are really highly skilled. I think every one of us should be a translators in many aspects of our life. Just be open for difference, for things we don't understand, try to understand them and accept that difference. I think it's an act of translation. So this is just one level. I can go on forever, but. <laughs> now, can I ask you, uh, Edwin, English is the hegemonic lingua franca of the world. 
do we need translations in English? I mean, every other small nation uses the English. Do we need to translate from other smaller country language linguistic communities? Yeah, this is this is actually I mean my own, my own experience of growing up in a a monolingual rural Australian environment that. It is, in a sense, I only understood the world when I started to learn Indonesian and started to learn other languages. So there's, there's a great illusion that you live under if you only live in English because you think you can communicate, um, but you can't, or at least your communication is much more limited. And uh, you've probably seen there was a recent study that's been circulating on the internet about the fact that native speakers of English are actually some of the worst communicators in English because if you're a native speaker who doesn't speak another language, then you can't understand how somebody else is listening to you and, and receiving what you're trying to convey. Um, and, and it takes a long time to learn that, both through the errors of mistranslation and just even the basic fact of being told that what you're saying is not intelligible. I, I had this experience when uh, my first book was being translated into Japanese and and my Japanese translator who went to Oxford and, and was fluent in English came to me with this list of phrases which I did not realise were idiomatic Australian expressions and, she's, and then I had to sit down and try to explain those. So that made me realise the limitations of my own language and I think just speaking English is a huge limitation. It's what Wittgenstein said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. So learn second language. Now, Chris, since we raised the issue of the Australian English, yes. do we have, uh, as translators from Australia, within the Australian society, something to contribute to the wider community of translations, of translating, or the conversations about translation? Are we too peripheral? Are we, under, are, are we under the hegemony and the domination of the Brits and the Americans? To some degree we are, yes. It, if, as translators, we're working um, under contract for a British or an American translator, we're translating into British or American English, more or less. Um, and when you do that, um, as an Australian translator, it's slightly confusing because you find yourself using terms that seem to you to be completely linguistically unmarked, as, for example, sticky beak is to me. That's, that's, that's a normal word for me. Um, but for an American editor, that is a strange Australianism. And, there, there, and however long you do the job, you, you realise there, there will be more of these things that you'll find uh, in the editing process. Um, at the moment, I'm translating for the first time a book for an Australian publisher. And that's, uh, that's a pleasant experience because I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I just, I just put it into um, my dialect. So in, you know, I just choose the words as I would naturally speak them or write them. Um, but that's, um, that's an, probably an unusual experience for an Australian translator because most of the books uh, that, that Australian translators would be doing would be commissioned overseas. So, just what do you think about that? Because you came from America, you studied in Canada, sorry. Canada? No? <laughs> there, there is no greater faux pas All for right. a Canadian yeah, yeah, yeah. than to say you came from America. Yeah, I came yeah, from right. America in the Spanish sense. Oh, in the Spanish yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you think about the differences 
I mean, what Australian literary tradition translates into? Do we have a, a, a tradition of translators in this country? I think of you know dozens of people in the room. I am least well placed to answer that particular question. I mean, there are a number of very prominent uh, Australian translators from Chinese. Uh, two of them are honorary fellows at the University of Sydney, Mabel Lee and Bonnie McDougall. Um, I have to say, um, I read both of their uh, translations. Um, and as Chris says, they were being published not in Australia the, uh, at that time. And um, it, was, it was, you know, in much later when I began to figure out the networks of graduate studies and such that I realized that they were Australians at all. I think, um, I think unless you have a, a, a reason in Chinese studies, unless, for instance, I'll give an example. Uh, Jia Zhangke recently um, made a movie, so he's a prominent Chinese director, um, in which the whole last third, perhaps, was set in Australia. And it appears to have been filmed in Australia, but he didn't hire any... Australian actors, at least from what I could tell, it seems to me that everybody who spoke was speaking North American English. So I don't, I don't know the details of that production. I just give it as an example to say, from, from the Chinese perspective, um, Australia has sort of a kangaroo profile um, and otherwise struggles to uh, make it, you know, differentiate itself from the English world in general, in, in, in the field of, say, cinema or literature. Now, my question is about institutional assistance here in Australia. Probably I will have to ask you, issue <laughs> about this. Do we have an institution, a center of translating studies, translation studies, a center will will help people to promote? Because, as we said, this is a cultural necessity in this country. It's not simply I translate a book over a writer that I like. It's a cultural necessity of communicating between communities, between faiths, between uh, the indigenous po population and us. You know, this, uh, I mean, this is a very important aspect of these dialogues that we have in society. Do we have a assistance? Do we have an institution? Do we have a center How to, to actually to go to and uh, find resources and assistance? Well, if you are talking about institutionalized center within the university, uh, we don't have one yet. But I hope when we all work together, we will have one one day. This is just the beginning. This is just when we realize we need to reflect and we need to talk about what we do and we need to link what we do with the bigger picture in the society. So we are not just sitting in our you know, office or behind our desk. So it's a good question, not yet, but I think if we work hard, we may well have one. Let's work hard. Uh, <laughs> my, my other question is Adrian. I mean, the Prime Minister uh, Turnbull has talked about innovation. Can we have innovation without translation in this country? I mean, translation as a cultural practice, not simply as a verbal translation. How do we innovate in this country when we don't have people come from outside to tell us what to do differently in a new way? 
I think you just answered your own question. All oh, right. But <laughs> indeed, uh, I mean, it, it works. So that we're actually talking about many levels of translation. I mean, some of the conversation has been about literary translation, which is an important vehicle of basic cultural understanding, but, but there are also practical levels. Uh, 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 most, the most immediate example that comes to mind is when you get a book of instructions as to how to work a piece of equipment, and it's totally unintelligible because it's been translated by Google Translate. So, so at, at that level, you really do need to have a basic infrastructure of multilingualism in order to be bringing in new ideas and actually coming to terms with ideas. But it's also about Australia's relationship with the rest of the world. So if we think about ourselves as only connecting with the United States and only with Great Britain so that we don't have to worry about all those other troublesome languages, in fact, that's an incredibly limited view of the world. So in terms of very bright people doing very smart things in Africa or in Southeast Asia, we want to be part of that. We want to be open to that and not cut off from it. I think that, that's really important. We have many students from China, Japan, Asian countries, African countries, European countries learn to learn, come here to learn English. Do you think that we have something to offer them or do we have, they simply have to learn English or do we have to learn their language as well? And what is the new thing that comes out of the whole thing? If we learn Romanian or Russian, for example, now we have Putin, of course, and we have to keep him, keep an eye on him. But, you know, just, you know, do we have to learn Russian, not simply to read Dostoevsky, but to understand what happens in Russia when all Russians... Well, this, this, this is a bit like at, at the beginning of the, uh, the Second Gulf War and, and after 9-11, uh, suddenly intelligence organisations and military organisations, security, found that they hadn't been training enough speakers of Arabic, Pashtun and four or five other important languages that you needed to know what was going on in Afghanistan and... Iraq. So, so that's a very practical example that maybe you would think that one particular language is totally obscure, Mongolian, but in fact then you find out that Australia has a major aid program in Mongolia and, and in fact we do need linguistic knowledge of, of Mongolia. So it, it's very much a two-way street. I mean certainly people come here say, people come from China in order to not just benefit from the high quality of what this university has to offer in terms of education, but to get experience in English, which will be incredibly valuable going back to China or in, in whatever that they do. But it has to be a two-way street. Uh, Chris, as a poet, you have a very personal perception of translation. Is there, what was the, tra the reception of translation in Australia here. Are there any mechanisms in the newspapers, in the media, in, uh, uh, on TV that actually we can publicise what we're doing here? What can you, you can promote your work so you can attract new people who can be translators as well? 
Well, yeah, I think there are, there are rev <coughs> reviewing outlets that are, that are open, receptive to, to works in translation. So Australian Book Review, Sydney Review of Books, uh, and, and many of the, many of the journal, literary journals. Um, if I can just add something that's slightly at an angle um, uh, to, to, to join on to something that Josh said before about multiplying the kinds of stories that are available uh, in, in English about a particular culture. Um, I would like to think that as well as doing that translation uh, is not a, that, that the process of reception doesn't stop there, that it, um, by multiplying those stories it makes people um, hungry for more and hungry even for uh, a knowledge of the, the language, the source language from which these things have been translated. So um, I, I hope it's not too idealistic to think that reading works in translation will stimulate some people to go off and learn some or even a lot of the source language. And Josh, you said that, you know, we need these many stories, essentially, that we have to... Is that necessary today? I mean, we see TV, we see all these beautiful programs, you know, the mass culture produce, uh, that produces, and most of it can be, has beautiful subtitles or wrong... Do we need to do that? Do we learn, need to learn another language for this? Well, I mean, beautiful subtitles for pop culture is also translation. I mean, it's also, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's it'll be interesting to, to see because, of course, it's part of um, China's big push um, to, you know, soft power push associated with the One Belt, One Road. It's very difficult to separate, um, at the moment, the promotion of Chinese pop culture from um, the political support. Uh, being given to it. It is definitely um, the desire of, of one of the world's most powerful states to make its pop culture accessible through translation um, to the largest possible audience. Um, it seems to me that, it, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a very poor judge of how pop culture will play out. Um, I, we, I don't think we've really seen the sort of Chinese blockbusters and the, the Chinese um, television shows and stuff make it into the enormously main, mainstream. Um, but um, when, it, when it gets round to questions like that, again, it sort of uh, um, alarms some people and sort of raises the hackles of some people, and then it might take you round to the question of, well, you know, how much does it not alarm Australians or Canadians, the amount of American pop culture that they've been consuming, you know, for how many decades? You know, how, 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 why, perhaps I'm straying off topic, but why, um, why does the promotion of uh, Chinese cultural products um, or, um, or why does the sort of cultural, potential for cultural influence of China um, pose questions that aren't as often asked about other foreign influences on countries like, like say, Australia or, or uh, Canada. So I, I think that whole area of pop culture plus translation um, is, is socially and politically uh, important. It's important for, the, for how Australia you know, imagines itself, how it imagines its relationship with, uh, with the Asia Pacific. Um, that said, uh, I'd like to sort of, um, uh, you know, pick up on Chris's idealism, maybe Adrian's comment about Dostoevsky is like, uh, 
Yeah, I think it's true that I think it, it, I believe it to be true, and it, if it isn't true, it should be true that um, you know there's only so much Chinese Tang poetry, for instance, that you should read in translation before you try and figure out how that language works. You know, to, it, Chinese, the Chinese classics have you know whether it's the Tao Te Ching or the Tang poetry um, have again and again been you know, a spur for Anglophone uh, and Francophone and Germanophone literary production. Um, and there's, you know, uh, Ursula Le Guin has just passed. She was a, you know, a, a translator whose Dao De Jing made a big impression even though she didn't read Chinese. Um, you know, like, I'm happy if her version of the Dao De Jing brings you to the real Dao De Jing, you know, but then you should, then it, I hope it is that spur. You know, yes, you should read Dostoevsky and Chekhov and the Tang poets. And yes, it is sort of the business of translators while being interested in the pop culture developments to also say, look, China isn't just this enormous political and economic power. It is also one of the world's great cultures, civilizations, and it has a completely different question, a different answer to the question of what is poetry, what is theater, what is art. And, and you cannot access it you, you can only get to the door through English translations. And if you want to go through that door, uh, you ought still to study Chinese. Well, it seems that um, Dastiari needed a better translator from Chinese, all right? You know, if I may say, you know, he got the money from there. But then, issue, since you know these cultures, I think that, do you think that Australia can contribute to this process? Because we are essentially at the crossroads between East and West. I, I stayed in Australia because of the vision of Paul Keating, who actually saw Australia belonging to this place, and you know, belonging to this is not simply a European sort of a fragment thrown in the middle of the Pacific. Do you think that that vision can be actually be actualized through the translation in all aspects of translating process that we can do here in Australia? Yes, I think so. And if if not, and we should try. It's something worth of trying because I think the dichotomic thinking between the East and West is so old. It's like when we think about translation, we used to talk the version of translation and the original, but there is always a third space. We can talk about translingual space, and in terms of culture and politics, I think the third space is a much better space where you could bring two blocks together. You could learn from both sides the best for yourself and hope that one day, you know, since we are talking about Dao De Jin and the middle way. Um, so I think Australia is uniquely positioned uh, to bring the two worlds together. Yes, definitely. So what can, what can we do, Adrian, about this? You know, you, I mean, you are essentially, I believe, one of the cultural translators between us and uh, our most important neighbor, Indonesia. You are an emblematic sort of a figure in this process. Mm. What is to be done? What more can we do? Mm. Well, I think that's, that's also partly consciousness about what we want to do. So, so the broader question is that people talk about Australia punching above its weight in economy or whatever. But if we don't want to depend on 
digging up coal and real estate development, then Australia has to do more. And we've got incredible resources in terms of what the universities do, in terms of our creative resources. If you look at Australian writers, Australian contributors to popular culture, you know, the, the Nick Caves of the world, that it's exactly what we can do in terms of translation. Uh, Josh mentioned uh, Mabel Lee before, and, and one of Mabel Lee's accomplishments was to be the translator of the Nobel Prize winner. So that is an example of what you can do on fairly limited resources from Australia. But I think it does require some imagination and commitment on the level of government to move away from purely a kind of short-term benefit cost analysis to thinking about a long-term vision of Australia and how we would position ourselves in relationship to Indonesia. So uh, how we would open up a dialogue with, with Indonesia because there's incredible people-to-people -people contact going on. There's all kinds of cultural exchanges. Uh, I mean, a few months ago we had uh, a major Indonesian um, rock group here uh, doing a, a presentation, and, and uh, tomorrow there'll also be a, a presentation on cultural translation. There's a lot of those activities that go on, but they don't get the attention that they should, and, and it's just a matter of cultural orientation in the media, in terms of government attention, to promoting those kinds of interactions. Well, it seems that we need an educated nation again, to re-educate, to, not to uneducate, as the uh, uh, you know, com commercial would say here in Sydney. Uh, Chris, can I ask you something? What do you think that, uh, if I may ask, because you're interested in poetry and literature, and the, have we contributed enough as as a nation which tries to find expression for itself poetically and through its translation, the translation of the common experience here in Australia. Because it's so diverse, from starting from the indigenous people, starting from the, uh, the settlers, and then from uh, the, uh, the, my, uh, the uh, ethnic communities, if I may call them, but now we have a completely new reality. Have we translated that common, that common shared, Australian experience into word? Not enough. <clears throat> Not enough, no. And um, I think it's, and it's good to remember that the importance of translation for Australia is not just about um, external relations of foreign affairs, but also um, it connects importantly with the preservation and the reclamation of indigenous languages. Um, so it's part of, um, it's part of that, that important program uh, that we had some great talks about this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not my area, I'm not an expert in it, but I think that that needs to be kept in view because every language is a very rich set of cognitive tools and a way of knowing and understanding the world. And when a language goes, something, something irreplaceable is lost. Um, yeah, the language death in Australia, the linguist side, is very sort of atrocious what we have, especially yeah. in indigenous languages, and this is one of the things, can, can it be addressed? We discussed it this afternoon. Well, well one we of the interesting things about hearing the, the, the talks this afternoon was um, the amazing work in reclamation that's been done, sometimes using very old documents. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's better for me to leave it to someone who knows the area better. Yeah, but question time. Yeah, it was very important, as you said, because, Josh, do you see this as is, is a part of national healing in this country, 
or national cohesion that we need, social cohesion that we need in this country here. Because as you see, you know, I mean, for many, many years, and if I may, I mean, that's not my political uh, idea, but the, under neoliberal economic policies, the fabric of this society has been essentially some, somehow being confused, if I may say, or, or rather dismantled. Um, so I, I've, I've been in Australia one year as, uh, as, an outsider. As, you, as you may recall. So I can only speak as an outsider, and if I feel confused about the national fabric of Australia, that's maybe par for the course for somebody you know, who's only spent uh, that long here. Um, I, so I, I'm, I'm really, I, in terms of, you know, is it a part of national healing? I, I'm so unqualified to speak about uh, Australian history, Australian society. I can, I can only guess um, that the, that the, for instance, the um, work being done to revitalize uh, Australian Aboriginal languages um, may in some way parallel the, the work being done also in my country, in Canada, to revitalize the language. It's also a place where there's been an enormous amount of linguicide and where the um, amount of indigenous languages being sort of being spoken continues to decrease and is valiantly being upheld by both communities and linguists and stuff like that. That's, that, you know, I, I, think, I think there are, actually there's maybe parallels in places that are further afield, you know, Canada and Australia share a settler history and in some ways the timelines are also parallel. Um, uh, but I, I spent some years also in Taiwan. It's, there are Asian cases also that maybe are less on people's radars. Um, some of the stuff that I've translated are also from Taiwanese Aboriginal writers. Uh, there is an assumption, again, that China is a, or that Chinese is a monolithic sort of entity. What people may not realize is that Taiwan is sort of colonized, is settled by Han Chinese people um, from, I mean, and Europeans, but from the 17th century. And so in many ways, it's a new world um, <laughs> territory. Um, and, uh, and has also that, uh, that dynamic of, of linguicide and attempts to revitalize language and attempts to create, you know, to turn the oral history of that language into new forms of literature. Um, so uh, I think um, there are parallels to be, to be found in that project uh, quite far afield. You know, quite, quite. For, you know, I think if you looked at the fate of certain dialects of Chinese in mainland China, or certain minority languages in the, for instance, the southwestern parts of China, you would also uh, uh, see the same dynamic of sort of historical, um, either overt uh, attempts at linguicide or uh, negligence, and very recent efforts to revitalize. So issue, since we're going from talking about this, do you think that there's a national benefit to actually promote multilingualism in this country so we'll have more translators? What's the national, what's the national reason behind the whole thing? Otherwise, people think that this is a sort of a personal idiosyncratic vice that people want to learn another language and want to translate the poet or the, the novelist they like. Do you think there's a national benefit, I mean, collectively speaking? 
Yes, or the list of benefits would be inexhaustible. Can't list all of them. And I think the smallest one would be having many translators. Ideally, would I think we would have everybody able to speak more than one language, regardless which one, because for each individual, your world will be double the size if you speak one more language. And if your world is bigger, you're happier. And if you're happy, you make a happy nation. And then I can go on with the list of benefits for, for there is no end, but it's part of my job to promote the learning of language, languages. Yeah, there is a national benefit, and we will be a much open-minded, a much knowledgeable, and a better nation, and better nation for our neighbor and for the world. Yes, definitely. Has the, the, is, that, is our government aware of these benefits? <laughs> Have we been in any way, as you understand, you know, in tune, in sync with these people to explain to them what we are doing here, and this is not simply a, a meeting of uh, lazy intellectuals in an ivory tower talking about meaningless uh, and trivial pursuits? Oh, well, I can't speak for the government. Um, I think all our politicians, regardless from which corner of political persuasion they come, they need to think more than about the three years they will be in government. To build a nation is not a job for one legislative period. So we need to see agenda which actually serves a nation as a whole for much longer than three years. Whether I'm going to get a tax cut next year or not doesn't really figure, but I really would like to say long term. I mean, we had some support for our diploma of languages, but that was only promised for four years. So what's going to happen now? I don't know. It's up to us. So Adrian, you are a translator. Can I ask you something personally now, as Adrian Vickers? What was the impact of your contribution to this dialogue between uh, our society, between Indonesian and Australian societies? Good question. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to measure in very specific terms because when you translate ideas or uh, even just translating a text, you're never quite sure who the readers are and you find that out much later. So it's a, a long-term proposition that, that you might, you know, five years after you do something, you might meet somebody who said, I read that and it was a really life-changing experience. So I think that, I mean, that's generally the, an issue in the realm of knowledge as a whole, that we have to look at this as a long-term issue. And, and as, as Yishu says, uh, this should not be governed by parliamentary terms of three years, that, that we're talking about investments for 10 years, 20 years before we'll know what the full impact of something is. Although it, it is surprising that, that um, since we've recently found out how multicultural our parliamentarians are, um, <laughs> in fact, that, that a number of our parliamentarians do speak a number of other languages and some are learning languages, there's a few even learning Indonesian, um, that, that somehow that also needs to translate into a broader agenda of living in a multilingual world because it's, it's not just a matter of one person learning another language, that once you find out about languages, you find out that 
people in different societies are always operating on multiple levels. We've heard that that was part of Australian Aboriginal experience where, where people were using eight languages on a daily basis and, and that's not actually so far from, say, experience in Indonesia when I was doing research in Bali that I would meet people who only spoke Balinese but then other people who'd be moving between Balinese and Indonesian and two or three other languages. And, um, you know, if you go to the Netherlands, everybody speaks English, German, French and two or three other languages and they probably studied Latin at school. Uh, that somehow we need to get that richness of language experience across. Yeah, it's very strange. As you see, some, some of us who have travelled in Asia, in oral societies, you'll find communities where people speak six languages and without even actually having a problem going moving from one language to another, which is really important. Now, uh, since we're going to the personal level now, which are your principles as a translator, uh, you know, just Chris? Are you faithful or creative? <laughs> are you faithful to the original? Do you believe in the accuracy? of a translation, or you try to be very creative or a trans-creator? Tell us. Uh, <clears throat> Perhaps loyal is a word I might, might prefer to faithful. Um, do you want to be loyal? Yeah, I do want to yeah, be loyal. Right. I, want to be loyal <laughs> I want to be loyal to the work. Um, but, you know, you, that doesn't mean translating clearly. It doesn't mean translating word for word. That would, in many cases, produce pure gobbledygook. So, um, do you take any liberties? Do you, my question is because we talked about the subjectivity of the translator. Do you project yourself on the, on the translated text? I, th I think you, you end up inevitably leaving some kind of stamp on it, even if it's only the sticky beak that you try to get past the American right. editor. Um, yeah, you do. You leave, you leave um, habits of syntax and vocabulary inevitably. Um, whether you, as a translator, decide to exalt those, and, and um, personally, I don't. Um, I think you know it's all about it's all about. Um, as a translator, you're working with your nose on the text, really. Um, as you move through your versions, you get slightly further away. So at the at the beginning, it's all about word choice. Then in later versions, it's about sentences and paragraphs. And hopefully, by the time you do the last version, you're thinking about the whole work and how you can balance word choice at the beginning and at the end and so on. Uh, but you're still, um, not, I think, as a practical translator, not in the moment of translating, not very preoccupied with, with theoretical questions. Afterwards or before, uh, there's no reason why a practicing translator can't also be an interesting th uh, theoretician of translation. But to do the two things at the same time... Uh, the, f the, the famous Italian expression, traduttore, traditore, translator, you are a traitor. Are you a traitor? You know. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do you betray the original sometimes? Well, may, maybe the, tra maybe maybe the translators themselves readable. are not the best, best people to say. <laughs> I don't feel like one, but, you know... You know, yeah. And what do you think, Josh, about cultural translation? Can we accurate, can we, if I may say, you know, using 19th century terms, transfer the essence of a culture through another language to another culture? Um, it's a 19th I, century question. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I agree with Chris that as a translator, you usually have your nose in the text. Um, and so that, you project yourself. Well, inevitably, yes. I mean, that, that's not my guideline, project myself. Um, it's just, you know, there is a conduit from one language to the other, and that conduit is me. And some conduits are better than other conduits, and some conduits are more marked than other conduits. And it is true that if I read the same translator you know, translating three different novels by three different Chinese writers, I might recognize the translator's style as well as or instead of or, you know, e more easily than the original author's style. There's no question that you have your little ticks. I think Chinese is particularly susceptible to this. And the reason is I've also translated from French and from German. And the reason is that French is going to give you a whole bunch of cognates, German a little bit less, but also quite a lot of cognates. You're going to have the opportunity to some degree to model the sentence, the English sentence, on what's going on in the French and German within reason. Um, and in Chinese, I don't, you know, in Chinese, especially with poetry, um, the, the, like, that distance just seems to me much further. Um, I need to read the Chinese, you know, line of poetry, whatever it is, be like, what's going on in this line of poetry? And then, and then say, how would I say, you know, how would I achieve the same effect in English? And of course, you're always doing that from any language, but it, it's just, I, I do think there's, I can think of it maybe as a, as a sketch, say, you know, like, and if you're working from a language, you know, if you're working from Norwegian to Swedish, it's already quite filled in. And then you're, you're, no, you're adding the touches because the distance is not so great. And from English to German, English to French, something like that, you know, it's a little sketchier. And English to Russian, yet a little sketchier. And English to Chinese, you know, like, you've almost got the blank page, yeah? So somebody's told me, draw a picture of a dog, you know, I draw a picture of the dog. My dog is gonna look much more, you know, much more different um, than Chris's dog, than if somebody had already sort of sketched in four legs and a tail and told us each to fill it in. Um, there's just a, there, you know, ha, there's, a, there's a, a greater distance. So, I mean, you know, what is the alternative to treason? You know, the alternative to treason is another treason, which is to not do it, right? So, you know, no, you can't get all of the essence of tongue poetry from me. I can't do it, nobody can do it, other people can do it better than me, but it's just, you know, read the Chinese if you want to know the Chinese. If you want to know the best English approximation of the Chinese, read 27 different translations. I am all with you, as you understand, because I'm a scholar of the New Testament, and I see one of the most important mistakes that we do in, in a theological discourse, you know, this is that mistranslations. All of these, you know, just, it's, a, it's a history of mistranslations. And very few people understand that if you, Sometimes you fall, if I may say, into heresy. Sometimes you fall into an, a grave error because you, you read the wrong text. It's a wrong, it's a wrong translation. What is the meaning of the word salvation? What is the meaning of the word sin? What is the meaning of the... So, so wrong, and we have 1919 uh, uh, centuries of a wrong form of Christianity. <laughs> now, it becomes, becomes a serious problem, as you understand. But as you understand, uh, sorry about this, I just want to show you with these questions how complex the process of translation is. How sometimes, as you see, indeterminate the process of translating is as well. And the dilemmas that most uh, uh, translators have to deal with and have to answer to, as you understand, in order to give us a coherent text. Now, enough with us.
questions from you. You know, just yes, Jackie. Thank you. It's been really interesting, Jackie Troy, Director for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Research here at Sydney. Um, I want to ask why in Australia we don't train translators of Australian languages, those being the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages of this country. Issue that's for you. <laughs> I would love to do it. I think the picture is much bigger because everything, more or less, if we want to do something, we will need to be able to fund it. I think we come back really to the will of people who can make those decisions. And from our side, I think we will do that lobbying work, but we, I always think that you know, Rome is not built in one day once we realize that actually we should be doing something, that's a start. So we will just work on that. I think one day, I hope, there will be not just those linguists who are trying to preserve in the dying uh, indigenous languages. I hope that there will be new generations, younger people, to recreate languages and to use them as a living language. But, you know, it's a goal and I'm absolutely committed um, to start. I think the realization, at least in this group, is a beginning and how we can turn that into a big wave to push people who can make decisions. And then I think we need to be smart and determined to do so. Thank you. Yeah, uh, can I just add, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just think one of the, the key issues is infrastructure as well, that, that in the past, uh, say 30 years ago, there were one or two linguists who were perhaps regarded as eccentric. Uh, my friend Peter Austin, who comes from the same part of the world as I do, was going out recording local Aboriginal languages when people did not think that that was something that anyone should do. Um, so it shouldn't just depend on individual interests. It, it, there should be enough infrastructure. Uh, fortunately, here at the University of Sydney, we have Paradisic, which is a, an online, a digital resource. But you need a lot of... You, you need libraries, you need programs where it's not just one or two isolated individuals, but ways to connect people, I think. Well, as you understand, it's a very complex issue. It's institutional, first of all, because Aboriginal languages have been neglected by the Australian state, essentially persecuted, essentially, you know, just squashed into to extinction. So we must start the healing process now, as we said, how we recover, retrieve languages together with the populations, together with the, the people themselves, the mob, as you said before. And, uh, of course, this is one, of, I think, that should be one of the national priorities in this country. One, uh, if not the first, one of the first, the second, at least. It must be a national priority for this country, for any government. Second um, question? Are there any ideas in terms of what you were saying about understanding how early... Um, written language was, for instance, like cuneiform and languages back then, in terms of if we can't find translators, and my understanding is there are some ancient languages that we have no translators for, in terms of getting a view on how civilization was back then in the very beginnings, 
How do we do that if we don't have a Rosetta Stone for those languages? And how are we ever going to know what life was like if we can't read what they wrote in you know, those very, very early um, you know, Euro greater European areas? So, yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> well, if I may say, I, uh, at Sydney University, we used to have one of the very few translators of the cuneiform in the 80s and early 90s. We have, used to have Babylonian script. We, have used, we still have Sanskrit, one of the most important. Uh, uh, we have a Sanskrit man here, as in Mark Allen, professor, you know, here, you know, just we have uh, all of these uh, languages. As you said, and your question is very interesting, and I address that to uh, issue, what can we do to promote this work? You know, because we are, we're doing, I mean, the translators are doing such an important work, but nobody knows anything about them. Because there is a famous book called The Invisibility of a Translator. You, read, you go and read the news in the morning. You see, you know, on uh, Facebook, you have the, somebody translated all these things. Who is this person? Do we need this person? So what can we do to make translation more visible? Well, you are doing all right by <laughs> <laughs> organizing this talk because then it just becomes more than just what we talk in our meeting rooms in the School of Languages. Now we have reached hundreds of people, so you are doing all right, and just keep doing it. <laughs> but it's a collective effort, I think, that's what we have to do. Anyway, that's the, our answer, as you understand. It's provisional. It's like the institutions that we need to help, because as you see, you have heroic individuals. Essentially, when we say heroic individuals in Australia, we mean loners. People who are alone to do their important cultural work of cultural mediation without any assistance. Which is the good thing and the romantic thing at the same time. We love this kind of romantic heroes, as you understand. Any other questions? Yes. Oh, uh, hi, I do have the question that related to the last question. But instead of the Asian text, I just want to ask, how do you think about the translation of more Asian culture or literatures? Like, we, there's necessity that we care about how people think nowadays from different language, but how do, like, nowadays translators or uh, scholars care about um, more Asian staff, like, customers from a different language? Well, the second, uh, the first session today of our conference was precisely about all the Chinese texts, philosophical texts. So, Josh, you were there, and you gave, you know, <laughs> you gave us, you will give us your uh, impressions. Um, yeah, I, it's sort of the translation of older texts is part of the general struggle, I think, <laughs> or battle, to uh, remind. Uh, people whose attention spans are perhaps, including my own, <laughs> limited by the amount of beeping technology that I have in my pocket or on my screens or whatever. I think, I think um, it's, a, it's a real but subtle uh, danger to, uh, and it, it, it isn't connected to any one language, but I, I do think our sort of reading habits are being eroded um, and that you don't have to go very far back. You know, you go to 19th, 18th century texts. It doesn't really matter if the texts are French or 
German or Chinese or English, um, I think you know they they're they're they they're at a certain distance from our present society. They aren't easily uh, digested. Um, they repay close attention. Um, I think if you're so you know I work in Chinese studies. So if we're talking about a Ming Dynasty play or Tang or Song Dynasty poetry or even earlier poetry, you know it takes it takes time to look at what the text appears to say and if possible to look at what the commentaries are and you know what the apparatus is and it's a difficult argument to make because it's supremely uncool um, to be like you know everybody spend everybody spend more time with poetry um, but I, I don't I don't know what else to say I mean it is uh, I, I it's sort of part of the general uh, argument you know to to try and turn off more and and get to the text and of course the text can be on a screen you know it is not you know it's not limited by technology technology gives you those opportunities too um, but um, I think it's a good practice linked also to philosophical and maybe meditation practices to like be with those kinds of texts and the more you are with texts that arise from older and very different cultures and societies and civilizations the the broader um, your sense of your own life and of society and the possibilities of the world will be. I mean, it's a, it's a hopelessly idealistic answer, but it, you know. But uh, building on, what, on your question, do you think that, and I ask all of you, do you think that technology can help us in this process? Is it simply a deviation, you know, simply deviates us from the right task of a translator? If I remember... Uh, remind you of Walter Benjamin, which is essential to recreate a text. Are we actually, is it a technology something that is misleading about the role of translation in this, in this society? It, it varies. So, so exactly what Josh was talking about, the, the problems of training, how we train ourselves to read have, has changed dramatically with, with the advent of, of personal devices and even I'm old enough to remember before we anybody use computers um, that, that, that those those have been major shifts in in people's nature of concentration and their engagement with with reading so that there is a downside which I think people are are aware of there's a lot of caution about that but there is also an upside so so we mentioned our colleague Mark Allon uh, previously, he that um, in terms of the understanding of ancient Sanskrit texts or of uh, Pali texts in in Asia. So now you can use a whole lot of digital tools to bring together fragments of texts in order to reassemble or at least to to kind of make comparisons. Uh, in terms of uh, my study of Balinese literature, for example, there is a whole library, literally a whole library of material in Balinese script that I can link, click onto on the internet and read those texts, uh, which previously I would have had to you know, fly to another country and spend weeks in a library. I can do that at home. So the availability is there, the, the, that we have enormous uh, technical tools now that we can use and we need to keep doing that, yeah. 
Um, just, just to add um, to, to, that, to that comment, um, I think the availability of portable video technology has really made a huge difference to um, recording endangered languages. And there's, there's a great um, article by Nick Evans in, in the Australian Academy of the Humanities magazine, Humanities Australia, about um, how much richer the information is that you get from a high-quality video recording of someone, for example, um, telling a story in an indigenous language. And the problem he points to there is that there's a great transcription bottleneck. So the, the information is now being accumulated quickly, but there are not enough people working on it. Uh, transcribing is really, really slow, and, and translating, of course, as well. Um, another thing about technologies is that um, uh, the, the translation, I don't mean Google Translate, I mean things like word reference um, are immensely helpful for translators because they record the quandaries of people all over the world trying to work out what a particular idiom means. And I think a lot of translators now will go, not to the, to the highly automated things, but to things like word reference forum or prose or lingua or whatever, and they'll see that people have struggled with this expression and they'll look at the great strings of advice that these people have got from anonymous contributors all over the world and they'll sift through very carefully because a lot of it's unreliable. But it's a resource that just didn't exist 10 years ago. So what do you think the issue about this? Because essentially this is the, where we need institutional and uh, support and uh, by the government or the university, whoever can give us the support, that would be good. Yeah, I think technology is extremely important for the future of translation. Uh, we can laugh at Google Translate now, but um, you know, you start with looking at them like a dictionary. We all needed help to do our first translation. It's not as if we know all the words in a foreign language and then try to translate their own. So a computer works much faster, but there are a lot of problems with technology at the moment for we keep saying that, you know, how do you translate humor with a machine? How do you translate individual styles, aesthetics, poetics behind the text? So the subtext level at the moment, we still don't have the machine to do it for us. But I think what the machine can do is certainly a help. I mean, if you believe in artificial intelligence, maybe one day the machine will be learned and will be processed, uh, you know, even those individual styles. So there is a future that's why even in our just introduced translation studies or multilingual translation, we will have course about digital translation. And I think that's just the way how it is. Yeah, as you said, one of the main characteristics of, uh, of different cultures is the sense of humor, that specific sense of swearing, which cannot be translated sometimes into another language because it's full of metaphors, full of a sort of a kind of metonymies, full of sort of a kind of displaced sense of humor. Australian humor is so dry, so you, mean, you say something, and you mean something completely different, and uh, it is so displaced, you have to have a certain code to translate. What do we do as translators? Do we solve the, the, the problem, or do we simply have it like this, you know, being, how do we translate, you know, just in... Well, there are many approaches. But if you're talking about methodology, generally speaking, in the Western um, cultures, there are two big schools of translation. The one from, you know, from French, uh, French classicism that you try to, you know, uh, adapt 
the foreign text as smoothly as possible into your target language. And then there is like the German school since Herder and Schleiermacher and so on. They think that the translation should enrich your own culture, which means something foreign should remain foreign in your own language. So these are big, you know, like pillars of thinking and individual translators, you know, pick and choice. That's why we also know this is a good translation, that's a bad translation. How do we know? Because we do not agree or we like certain choices a translator made, but it's just a big array of different approaches in translation. Um, thank you very much. It's been very interesting, and thank you for Sydney Uni for putting these free <laughs> uh, lectures on. But what I was wondering is, in terms of learning languages, um, often you hear people talking about school children and introducing uh, languages. In, in, and in my personal history, I found there has been, um, over the years, uh, opposition um, in the education system to teaching languages. And I'm, you know, getting on now, so this is not recent history. But uh, when I was growing up and uh, losing, you know, my mother's language and so on, I'm wondering in terms of knowledge of teaching languages when you're an adult, when it's much more difficult to learn a new language, uh, has there been um, new ideas in terms of uh, helping people to learn languages later in life? And uh, particularly we hear that it's good as an older person to learn a new language. It's very good for your neurons and, and keeping young and all of that. H how can we do that uh, with the best, effect most effective methods and not too dry? <laughs> well, that's another complex question. I mean, you must... Uh... <laughs> Edwin. Um, well, it, I mean, uh, that's kind of tricky. I think, I think actually, though, I mean, this is a problem, though, in the education system, that often it's not necessarily opposition to language, but just the fact that when people do the cost accounting, they think, oh, it's too expensive for us to teach language, so we'll drop German or we'll drop Indonesian and we'll have another class in, I don't know, whatever, economics, uh, not to pick on economists. But so, so, so there should actually be language learning at all levels and there should be a much... There, there should be a greater number of hours per week devoted to language within the education system. This is a basic flaw. And, and New South Wales education system has reduced uh, the number of hours that students learn languages. Um, and I think this is, this is a huge problem. So we, we actually need to be lobbying. We need to, need to be in the era of, of politicians to do that. Because I mean, the best way to learn a new language is to have learned another language before. It's much easier, if even if they're not necessarily related languages, you, you have that flexibility, that way of thinking that allows you to adjust to different systems. Which is not to say that, that, that you can't, you know, at 60 or whatever, you can't learn a different language. Um, everybody should try and it, I think, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will be absolutely fluent or that you'll be, you'll be um, producing the 251st translation of the Tao Te Ching in two weeks. Uh, so there is that thing that it's not going to give you immediate rewards that learning a language is a long-term proposition, but it's a whole lot of fun.
Um, so people should just learn languages for, for the pleasure, whatever the age. Yes. What do you do within a language with the changing nature of colloquialisms? Um, I can't keep up with the um, expressions that young people come up with. Uh, so how do you as translators deal with the changing idiom? Well, well that's a perennial question. The other day, my student said, this is crazy good. And I didn't <laughs> And I didn't <laughs> How do I translate crazy good now? You know, which is always more better now. As I said, you know, non-standard English. But this is, I think this is a challenge that you try to find similar expressions in other languages. There are many, you know, youngsters today do not have respect for grammar anymore, which is really good. Because, you know, just, you know, because only if you make a mistake, language will change. All linguistic changes because of mistakes. In the beginning, it was a mistake, and then it became the norm. This is how linguistically it happens. But uh, how to translate that depends on the text. You remember, if you have read The Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, it's written in the lingo of the underworld, you know, just of London. How do you translate that? You're a poet, Chris. How do you do that? Uh, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, I, actually, as it happens, I'm translating at the moment something that's set in a fairly distant future. Um, this is not actually responding to the question, it's responding to Bryce's question. <laughs> Never mind, you know, just, we triangulate, <laughs> you will triangulate. A fairly distant future in which the source language, which is Spanish in this case, has evolved quite a lot. And so on almost every page of the book there is an invented word uh, that, does, that is not in any, any Spanish dictionary. So what you have to do as a translator there is find something in English that doesn't exist but that is in context roughly as clear as the word is in the source text, which is not impossible, but it's slow. And uh, the first things that kept springing into my head sounded just too silly to, to keep. Um, sometimes the author is doing a portmanteau word, so sometimes he is combining two existing words in Spanish or maybe Spanish and Portuguese. So in that case, you can look for a combination, a squishing together of two words in English that might have something of the same meaning. Sometimes he just intuitively coins something. Um, so the, an example that, that comes to mind is that the, the character um, refers to uh, people who are lacking in spine as binimuchos, which doesn't really, I mean, mucho is m m much, um, or muchos is many in Spanish. But it doesn't really sound like any Spanish word, except maybe a little bit like marimacho, which is a, a butch woman in Spanish. Um, but the meaning in context is more like namby-pamby, or weak and milksop, or something like that. So I went for nambical, was what I went for in the end. Um, so, I mean, you, you're sort of flying blind. You have, to, you have to trust your intuition. Michael Hoffman says somewhere that he um, backs his feel for words against just about anybody's. Um, personally, I'm grateful for good editing, but I sort of see what he means. I think a translator needs to be someone who backs their own feel for words. And that's why when translators read the work of other translators, they start rectifying and correcting. It's just natural. Well, another complexity, as you see, of the translation. What do you think about this? Um... Well, I've, I was thinking of some movie subtitles um, I had seen, so translations of Chinese movies, 
um, in which the um, translation was colloquial and accurate, and the you know the characters were speaking in highly contemporary, you know, urban Chinese, um, and the translator had sort of correctly put them into highly colloquial New York English, and it was too new. Like it had this cognitive dissonance because they're clearly people in Chengdu, I think it was. So in Sichuan, you know, they're clearly people not from New York, <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and to have that sort of, uh, although it matched, although it was uh, equally colloquial, although it was, you know, inventive and well thought through, it was sort of not fit for purpose in the sense that when you're watching that movie, you don't always want to be thinking, why do they sound so much like New Yorkers? You know, so, and I've had the same, for instance, there's a, um, uh, um, the translator of I Am a Cat, Natsume Soseki, a, you know, early 20th century Japanese novel, um, was a Scot, if the name escapes me. But the, the sort of colloquialism, of course it's now, you know, a, a little bit old as well, but the colloquialism was too Scottish and I just couldn't, you know, for me as a reader, I couldn't put, you know, what was clearly some sort of Japanese colloquialism and you know, Scottish, sometimes you get Cockney, you know, people do do that. It doesn't work for me. Um, I think, unfortunately, maybe especially on subtitles, because, because you don't want people to be thinking about other things, they should be watching the movie or the play. Um, I think uh, sometimes you have to, although it's highly dialectal, highly colloquial, highly slangy, sometimes you do want to dial it down. Um, not, you know, it's, it's not the best equivalent, but it's the most fit for that for that purpose. I was watching a program the other day, Chinese program on SBS, If You Are The One. If you see, they try to match a man and a woman. And one of them was a poor American, but learned Chinese, and he was there to find his mate, there, you know, his girlfriend. And one of the women told him, told him that's a very interesting thing, you are trying to translate yourself from English into Chinese come into the language as you are. Is that the problem with subtitle? Or this is what she actually said? <laughs> and if you are the one, have you watched this program? If you are the one, you know, just, you know, just, you know, which is a very, one of the most popular and successful programs on SBS, as you know, strongly recommend, because if we talk about translation, this is where you see that, right? At a very bodily level, as you understand, of what we like in men and women through transculturally. Now, having said that, I would like to thank our, our panel for tonight, because you are, uh, we could go on talking forever. As I said, they actually try to uh, bring out the complexity of the act of translation, of the art of translation as well. At the same time, all these ramifications for our society, for our culture, and finally our future. The conclusion is one, we need an educated nation. We need people who speak many languages in order to understand that we live in a multicultural, multilingual society and our Social cohesion relies on this. I would like to thank all of you for being here tonight and uh, all of you as well. And uh, the next meeting of the Sydney Ideas will be sometime soon. Uh, thank you. <laughs>